Chapter Twenty Nine of the Pioneers, or The Sources of the Susquehanna, a Descriptive Tale by James Fenimore Cooper. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Twenty Nine. It is noised he hath a mass of treasure. Timon of Athens. When Marmaduke Temple and his cousin rode through the gate of the former, the heart of the father had been too recently touched with the best feelings of our nature to leave inclination for immediate discourse. There was an importance in the air of Richard, which would not have admitted of the ordinary informal conversation of the sheriff, without violating all the rules of consistency. And the equestrians pursued their way with great diligence for more than a mile in profound silence. At length the soft expression of parental affection was slowly chased from the handsome features of the judge, and was gradually supplanted by the cast of humor and benevolence that was usually seated on his brow. "'Well, Dickon,' he said, "'since I have yielded myself so far implicitly to your guidance, I think the moment has arrived when I am entitled to further confidence. Why and wherefore are we journeying together in this solemn gate?' The sheriff gave a loud hem that rang far in the forest, and keeping his eyes fixed on objects before him like a man who is looking deep into futurity, "'There has always been one point of difference between us, Judge Temple, I may say, since our nativity,' he replied. "'Not that I would insinuate that you are at all answerable for the acts of nature. For a man is no more to be condemned for the misfortunes of his birth then he is to be commended for the natural advantages he may possess. But on one point we may be said to have differed from our births, and they, you know, occurred within two days of each other. I really marvel, Richard, what this one point can be, for to my eyes we seem to differ so materially, and so often— Mere consequences, sir, interrupted the sheriff. All our minor differences proceed from one cause, and that is— our opinions of the universal attainments of genius. In what, Dickon? I speak plain English, I believe, Judge Temple. At least I ought, for my father who taught me could speak Greek and Latin, interrupted Marmaduke. I well know the qualifications of your family in tongues, Dickon. But proceed to the point. Why are we travelling over this mountain to-day? To do justice to any subject, sir, the narrator must be suffered to proceed in his own way," continued the sheriff. You are of opinion, Judge Temple, that a man is to be qualified by nature and education to do only one thing well, whereas I know that genius will supply the place of learning, and that a certain sort of man can do anything and everything. Like yourself, I suppose," said Marmaduke, smiling. I scorn personalities, sir. I say nothing of myself. But there are three men on your patent, of the kind that I should term talented by nature for her general purposes, though acting under the influence of different situations. We are better off, then, than I had supposed. Who are these triumviri? Why, sir, one is Hiram Doolittle, a carpenter by trade, as you know, and I need only point to the village to exhibit his merits. Then he is a magistrate and might shame many a man in his distribution of justice who has had better opportunities. "'Well, he is one,' said Marmaduke, with the air of a man that was determined not to dispute the point. "'Jotham Riddell is another, 
Who? Jotham Riddell. What? That dissatisfied, shiftless, lazy, speculating fellow? He who changes his county every three years, his farm every six months, and his occupation every season? An agriculturalist yesterday, a shoemaker today, and a schoolmaster tomorrow? That epitome of all the unsteady and profitless propensities of the settlers without one of their good qualities to counterbalance the evil? Nay, Richard, this is too bad for even—but the third. As the third is not used to hearing such comments on his character, Judge Temple, I shall not name him. The amount of all this, then, Dickon, is that the trio, of which you are one, and the principal, have made some important discovery. I have not said that I am one, Judge Temple. As I told you before, say nothing egotistical. But a discovery has been made, and you are deeply interested in it. Proceed. I am all ears. No, no, Duke, you are bad enough, I own, but not so bad as that, either. Your ears are not quite full-grown." The sheriff laughed heartily at his own wit, and put himself in good humour thereby, when he gratified his patient cousin with the following explanation. You know, Duke, there is a man living on your estate that goes by the name of Natty Bumpo. Here has this man lived, by what I can learn, for more than forty years, by himself until lately and now with strange companions. "'Part very true, and all very probable,' said the judge. "'All true, sir, all true. Well, within these last few months have appeared as his companions an old Indian chief, the last, or one of the last of his tribe that is to be found in this part of the country, and a young man who is said to be the son of some Indian agent by a squaw. "'Who says that?' cried Marmaduke, with an interest that he had not manifested before. "'Who? Why, common sense, common report, the hue and cry. But listen till you know all. This youth has very pretty talents—yes, what I call very pretty talents—and has been well educated, has seen very tolerable company, and knows how to behave himself when he has a mind to. Now, Judge Temple, can you tell me what has brought the three such men as Indian John, Natty Bumpo, and Oliver Edwards together?" Marmaduke turned his countenance in evident surprise to his cousin, and replied quickly, "'Thou hast unexpectedly hit on a subject, Richard, that has often occupied my mind. But knowest thou anything of this mystery, or are they only the crude conjectures of—' "'Crude nothing, Duke! Crude nothing! But facts! Stubborn facts!' You know there are mines in these mountains. I have often heard you say that you believed in their existence. Reasoning from analogy, Richard, but not with any certainty of the fact. You have heard them mentioned, and have seen specimens of the ore, sir. You will not deny that. And reasoning from analogy, as you say, if there be mines in South America, ought there not to be mines in North America, too? Nay, nay, I deny nothing, my cousin. I certainly have heard many rumours of the existence of mines in these hills, and I do believe that I have seen specimens of the precious metals that have been found here. It would occasion me no surprise to learn that tin and silver, or what I consider of more consequence, good coal— "'Damn your coal!' cried the sheriff. "'Who wants to find coal in these forests? No, no. Silver, Duke. Silver is the one thing needful, and silver is to be found. But listen. 
You are not to be told that the natives have long known the use of gold and silver. Now who so likely to be acquainted where they are to be found as the ancient inhabitants of a country? I have the best reasons for believing that both Mohegan and the Leatherstocking have been privy to the existence of a mine in this very mountain for many years." The sheriff had now touched his cousin in a sensitive spot, and Marmaduke lent a more attentive ear to the speaker who, after waiting a moment to see the effect of this extraordinary development, proceeded. "'Yes, sir, I have my reasons, and at a proper time you shall know them. No time is so good as the present. "'Well, well, be attentive,' continued Richard, looking cautiously about him, to make sure that no eavesdropper was hid in the forest, though they were in constant motion. "'I have seen Mohegan and the leather-stocking, with my own eyes, and my eyes are as good as anybody's eyes. I have seen them, I say, both going up the mountain and coming down it, with spades and picks. And others have seen them carrying things into their hut, in a secret and mysterious manner, after dark.' Do you call this a fact of importance?" The judge did not reply, but his brow had contracted with a thoughtfulness that he always wore when much interested, and his eyes rested on his cousin in expectation of hearing more. Richard continued, "'It was Orr. Now, sir, I ask if you can tell me who this Mr. Oliver Edwards is, that has made a part of your household since Christmas.' Marmaduke again raised his eyes, but continued silence, shaking his head in the negative. That he is a half-breed we know, for Mohegan does not scruple to call him openly his kinsman. That he is well educated we know. But as to his business here, do you remember that about a month before this young man made his appearance among us, Natty was absent from home several days? You do, for you inquired for him, as you wanted some venison to take to your friends when you went for Bess. Well, he was not to be found. Old John was left in the hut alone, and when Natty did appear, although he came on in the night, he was seen drawing one of those jumpers that they carry their grain to mill in, and to take out something with great care that he had covered up under his bearskins. Now let me ask you, Judge Temple, what motive could induce a man like the leather-stocking to make a sled? and toil with a load over these mountains if he had nothing but his rifle or his ammunition to carry. They frequently make these jumpers to convey their game home, and you say he had been absent many days. How did he kill it? His rifle was in the village to be mended. No, no. That he was gone to some unusual place is certain. That he brought back some secret utensils is more certain. And that he has not allowed a soul to approach his hut since is most certain of all. He was never fond of intruders. I know it, interrupted Richard. But did he drive them from his cabin morosely? Within a fortnight of his return this Mr. Edwards appears. They spend whole days in the mountains, pretending to be shooting, but in reality exploring. The frosts prevent their digging at that time, and he avails himself of a lucky accident to get into good quarters. But even now he is quite half of his time in that hut. Many hours every night. They are smelting. Duke, they are smelting. And as they grow rich, you grow poor. How much of this is thine own, Richard, and how much comes from others? I would sift the wheat from the chaff. Part is my own, for I saw the jumper, though it was broken up and burnt in a day or two. 
I have told you that I saw the old man with his spades and picks. Hiram met Natty, as he was crossing the mountain, the night of his arrival with the sled, and very good-naturedly offered—Hiram is good-natured—to carry up part of his load, for the old man had a heavy pull up the back of the mountain. But he wouldn't listen to the thing, and repulsed the offer in such a manner that the squire said he had half a mind to swear the peace against him. Since the snow has been off, more especially after the frosts got out of the ground, we have kept a watchful eye on the gentleman, in which we have found Jotham useful. Marmaduke did not much like the associates of Richard in this business. Still he knew them to be cunning and ready expedients, and as there was certainly something mysterious not only in the connection between the old hunters and Edwards, but in what his cousin had just related, he began to revolve the subject in his own mind with more care. On reflection he remembered various circumstances that tended to corroborate these suspicions, and as the whole business favored one of his infirmities, he yielded the more readily to their impression. The mind of Judge Temple, at all times comprehensive, had received from his peculiar occupations a bias to look far into futurity. In his speculations on the improvements that posterity were to make in his lands. To his eye, where others saw nothing but a wilderness, towns, manufactories, bridges, canals, mines, and all the other resources of an old country were constantly presenting themselves, though his good sense suppressed, in some degree, the exhibition of these expectations. As the sheriff allowed his cousin full time to reflect on what he had heard, the probability of some pecuniary adventure being the connecting link in the chain that brought Oliver Edwards into the cabin of leather-stocking appeared to him each moment to be stronger. But Marmaduke was too much in the habit of examining both sides of a subject not to perceive the objections, and he reasoned with himself aloud. It cannot be so, or the youth would not be driven so near the verge of poverty. "'What's so likely to make a man dig for money as being poor?' cried the sheriff. "'Besides, there is an elevation of character about Oliver that proceeds from education, which would forbid so clandestine a proceeding.' "'Could an ignorant fellow smelt?' continued Richard. "'Bess hints that he was reduced even to his last shilling when we took him into our dwelling. "'He had been buying tools.' And would he spend his last sixpence for a shot at a turkey had he not known where to get more? Can I have possibly been so long a dupe? His manner has been rude to me at times, but I attributed it to his conceiving himself injured, and to his mistaking the forms of the world. Haven't you been a dupe all your life, Duke? And ain't what you call ignorance of forms deep cunning, to conceal his real character? If he were bent on deception, he would have concealed his knowledge, and passed with us for an inferior man. He cannot. I could no more pass for a fool myself than I could fly. Knowledge is not to be concealed like a candle under a bushel." "'Richard,' said the judge, turning to his cousin, "'there are many reasons against the truth of thy conjectures. But thou hast awakened suspicions which must be satisfied. But why are we travelling here? Jotham, who has been much in the mountain latterly, being kept there by me and Hiram, has made a discovery, which he will not explain, he says, for he is bound by an oath. 
but the amount is that he knows where the ore lies, and he has this day begun to dig. I would not consent to the thing, Duke, without your knowledge, for the land is yours, and now you know the reason of our ride. I call this a countermine, ha! And where is the desirable spot? asked the judge, with an air half comical, half serious. At hand, and when we have visited that, I will show you one of the places that we have found within a week, where our hunters have been amusing themselves for six months past. The gentlemen continued to discuss the matter, while their horses picked their way under the branches of the trees and over the uneven ground of the mountain. They soon arrived at the end of their journey, where, in truth, they found Jotham already buried to his neck in a hole that he had been digging. Marmaduke questioned the miner very closely as to his reasons for believing in the existence of the precious metals near that particular spot, but the fellow maintained an obstinate mystery in his answers. He asserted that he had the best of reasons for what he did, and inquired of the judge what portion of the profits would fall to his own share, in the event of success, with an earnestness that proved his faith. After spending an hour near the place, examining the stones, and searching for the usual indications of the proximity of ore, the judge remounted and suffered his cousin to lead the way to the place where the mysterious trio had been making their excavation. The spot chosen by Jotham was on the back of the mountain that overhung the hut of leather-stocking, and the place selected by Natty and his companions was on the other side of the same hill, but above the road and, of course, in an opposite direction to the route taken by the ladies in their walk. "'We shall be safe in approaching the place now,' said Richard, while they dismounted and fastened their horses, for I took a look with the glass, and saw John and Leatherstocking in their canoe fishing before we left home, and Oliver's in the same pursuit. But these may be nothing but shams to blind our eye, so we will be expeditious, for it would not be pleasant to be caught here by them.' "'Not on my own land?' said Marmaduke sternly. "'If it be as you suspect, I will know their reasons for making this excavation.' "'Mum,' said Richard, laying a finger on his lip, and leading the way down a very difficult descent to a sort of natural cavern, which was found in the face of the rock, and was not unlike a fireplace in shape. In front of this place lay a pile of earth, which had evidently been taken from the recess, and part of which was yet fresh.' An examination of the exterior of the cavern left the judge in doubt whether it was one of nature's frolics that had thrown it into that shape, or whether it had been wrought by the hands of man, at some earlier period. But there could be no doubt that the whole of the interior was of recent formation, and the marks of the pick were still visible where the soft, lead-colored rock had opposed itself to the progress of the miners. The whole formed an excavation of about twenty feet in width and nearly twice that distance in depth. The height was much greater than was required for the ordinary purposes of experiment, but this was evidently the effect of chance, as the roof of the cavern was a natural stratum of rock that projected many feet beyond the base of the pile. Immediately in front of the recess, or cave, was a little terrace partly formed by nature, and partly by the earth that had been carelessly thrown aside by the laborers. The mountain fell off precipitously in front of the terrace, and the approach by its sides, under the ridge of the rocks, was difficult and a little dangerous. 
The whole was wild, rude, and apparently incomplete, for while looking among the bushes the sheriff found the very implements that had been used in the work. When the sheriff thought that his cousin had examined the spot sufficiently, he asked solemnly, Judge Temple, are you satisfied? Perfectly that there is something mysterious and perplexing in this business. It is a secret spot, and cunningly devised, Richard. Yet I see no symptoms of ore. Do you expect, sir, to find gold and silver lying like pebbles on the surface of the earth? dollars and dimes ready coined to your hands. No, no, the treasure must be sought after to be won, but let them mine. I shall countermine." The judge took an accurate survey of the place, and noted in his memorandum-book such marks as were necessary to find it again in the event of Richard's absence, when the cousins returned to their horses. On reaching the highway they separated the sheriff to summon twenty-four good men and true, to attend as the inquest of the county, on the succeeding Monday, when Marmaduke held his stated court of common pleas and general sessions of the peace, and the judge to return, musing deeply on what he had seen and heard in the course of the morning. When the horse of the latter reached the spot where the highway fell toward the valley, the eye of Marmaduke rested, it is true, on the same scene that had, ten minutes before, been so soothing to the feelings of his daughter and her friend, as they emerged from the forest. But it rested in vacancy. He threw the reins to his sure-footed beast, and suffered the animal to travel at his own gait, while he soliloquized as follows. There may be more in this than I at first supposed. I have suffered my feelings to blind my reason, in admitting an unknown youth in this manner to my dwelling. Yet this is not the land of suspicion. I will have leather stocking before me, and by a few direct questions extract the truth from the simple old man." At that instant the judge caught a glimpse of the figures of Elizabeth and Louisa, who were slowly descending the mountain, short distance before him. He put spurs to his horse, and riding up to them dismounted, and drove his steed along the narrow path. While the agitated parent was listening to the vivid description that his daughter gave of her recent danger, and her unexpected escape, all thoughts of minds, vested rights, and examinations were absorbed in emotion. And when the image of Natty again crossed his recollection, it was not as a lawless and depredating squatter, but as the preserver of his child. End of chapter 29 Recording by Bill Borst